Welcome back to the Green Element podcast, where we feature business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable. I'm your host, Will Richardson, and I can't wait to meet our guest today and help you on your journey of sustainability. Today, we had Ben Carter on from Minibens, and it is a brilliant podcast. I learned a lot, and I hope you will learn a lot. It's, their company works on district heating, but he goes into details of how your gas boiler and how your heating can be optimised at a very low to no cost, and you could be able to gain 5 to 10% plus, possibly more, on your system for not very much um, input. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Green Element Podcast. Thank you so much for joining today. Ben, you're from a company called Mini Bems, and you work with heating and optimizing heating controls and making sure district heating is more efficient. Can you tell us a bit more about your business and what your purpose and who you work with, please? Very much so. Thank you very much, Will. So it's very good to be here on the Green Element podcast. Yeah, so Mini Bems stands for Mini Building Energy Management System. And we work in the heating space specifically uh, within heat networks. And we came from a renewable energy background, a lot of biomass, small district heating systems. So because all of those systems were were getting metered and measured as part of a, a thing called the Renewable Heat Incentive, we were sticking these systems in thinking they were going to be quite efficient. And we found because we were able to measure how much fuel was going in and exactly how much energy was coming out, that in fact there was a big disparity between energy in and actual effective energy use at the point of use. So there was a big inefficiency problem. And about sort of maybe four or five years ago, the penny dropped with our CEO, Finian Parrick, and he started looking at it quite seriously. And Minibems, was born out of this idea of how can we get the energy management right? How can we figure out how to use that fuel that we're putting into the the boilers for district and communal heating and really turn it into the maximum amount of energy used? What that's turned into is, um, on one level, a very specific technical solution, which I I can tell you about, but essentially it's captured by the idea of flow rate optimization. But... That, that, that needs a little bit of unpacking. But um, what we found when we started looking at this is that we found that the incumbent technology is based around big, beautiful boxes of hardware in plant rooms that are generally very expensive, um, very big, and essentially very focused specifically on the boiler and not on the, on the heat network itself. So they're, they're, it's like the Titanic, the tit- you know, it's like turning the Titanic kind of thing. They're very big, um, not very granular, not very agile pieces of technology. Mini Bems is essentially turn- taking that big box and turning it into a tiny wee small box that we put at every single point of use throughout the system. So within every single flat, for example, on a heat network. So when we say Mini Bems, we're talking about moving the big hardware technology out of the plant room and putting that same level of sophistication but at every single point of energy use throughout the heat network. 
Okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. We will go into more detail about how <laughs> it all fits together. Yeah. Um, what sort of customers do you end up with and who do you end up working with? Yeah. Like all startups, we are a startup. We've only been going for about, um, officially, you know, this is our, we're entering into our fourth year. Um, we, uh, we thought our market was one and uh, it's slowly but surely we discovered it was another. We started off thinking it was all about the plant room as well. Mm. And actually we found that the people who really like working with us are housing associations, okay. local authorities, and also private residential developers because they own systems that include the heat provision to lots of end users. And do they pay so, for that energy at the end of it? or? So we sell our system to the, the client for us, our, our housing associations, social housing and private residential developers, and the end user, so the, the person who lives in the flat, in the tower block, say, they pay for their heat they pay specifically from the owner of the heat network. So that would generally be the housing association. And what are the reasons why they would use you? I mean, what um, other than less energy, what are the reasons behind Yeah. It? Okay, so when you look at, just to clarify what a heat network is, you've got two types of heat network. You've got a communal heat network and a district heating network. Communal heat network is, is simply any singular specific building with some kind of boiler or heat generating plant inside it and then heating up all the different offices, flats, uh, spaces within that building. So classically, that would be a tower block, a residential tower block, maybe in, in a city centre. And we would be feeding the, the water through that and heating up all the different um, flats within that. A district heating network is where you've got multiple buildings on the same heat network. So you've still got a centralized uh, source of energy and then feeding in different ones. Okay, so those are the two different types, communal and district. The reason why a housing association or a council would be interested in working with us is because they have a responsibility to provide the heat and to, to ensure that heat is delivered reliably. And generally, because they're in the social housing sector, they need it to be um, affordable. And particularly, you know, given where we are these days, there's ever more emphasis on making sure it's low carbon. So you'll have housing association X put up a, a new tower block for 100 homes, 100 flats, and they have got a long-term commitment to the end user, to the resident. And they need to make sure that over the course of the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, anyone who's living in any one of those flats is, you know, is not getting put into fuel poverty, um, is able to, you know, reach comfort at a price that they can afford, um, is not experiencing breakdowns too often. And so that's sort of the very first existential piece. It's how can we, how, you know, the question the housing association is asking themselves, how can we ensure that these, these people that we, that we, you know, we have a responsibility to look after can do it reliably. Mm. And the reason why they speak to people, many BEMS is because over the past, say, 10, 15 years or 20 years, there has been a slow increase in the deployment of heat networks within housing associations. And like, Lots of new technologies, 
when a new generation of people, of engineers, etc., are bringing are bringing this technology on, there's a lot of mistakes that are made. Mm. So we find that heat networks don't work reliably. We find that heat networks use a lot of primary fuel. We find, and this is a key part, we find that heat networks, we don't have the data for any given heat network to understand why it's working the way it's working, how it can be improved, and whether in fact it's doing what it's meant to be doing. So there's this idea of you stick the heat in, you stick the, the plant in, you provide the heat, and as long as no one calls you up and says, I've, you know, I've got a problem, then it must be working fine. And that's kind of where we are in many of the 14,000 works in the UK. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we start from that existential of can we provide useful heat, affordable and reliable? It's funny, isn't it, that you've said that we're starting to see more and more of them. There were a huge amount of them, what, 100 years ago or so, um, with district heating. Um, I remember reading a long time ago about Westminster and how they've got district heating in Westminster. And then you've got, has Southampton got quite a big um, central heating district because it runs on thermal energy yeah. and that's mm. got its own district mm. heating. Mm. I know Woking yeah. has uses district heating through their swimming pool and that was set yeah. up a long time ago. So, yeah. And then, of course, Sweden has been using closed-loop heating with factories and houses and using excess energy for a very long time. And quite frankly, mm. why we haven't done that, I have no idea. But <laughs> I do find it funny that we're kind of going back into what happened before. It's like, Seriously, we have to learn again. <laughs> Listen, that's a, that, that, that is a spot on. I think you're spot on there. It's um, so yes. I mean, there's nothing specifically new about this idea of saying, "Huh, you know, um, we've got a coal-powered plant over here. And it's 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 got a lot of waste heat. Let's chuck it into the local leisure center. Let's put it into the, the local buildings." I mean, that's essentially why heating networks existed. They thought actually, rather than build another boiler plant, why don't we just take some cheap waste heat from the guy next door kind of thing. So you're spot on at Southampton. That's, I think, the biggest district heating network in the UK. Right, okay. Um, and that's been there since the fifth. Um, I have stayed in a flat in Pimlico. Uh, in, in it's a, that is a big estate with maybe, I don't know, for two, 3,000 flats on it. Oh, it's one of the people yeah, in the states, isn't it? I think it might be. Yeah. I think it. I think it could well be. It's right on the banks of the River Thames there, and uh, you know it is. You know, right in the centre, you've got the big gas boiler, mm. and it, it is the perfect example of you know how bad a heat network can be. Now, don't get me wrong; it was a great idea at the time, but I've stayed in that flat, and I've stayed it in summer, and literally it is on six months, off six months. I actually think I know which flats. It's not the people who stay. And there's friends who are in the same flats, and he complains a lot about how he has to literally have his windows open the whole time because yeah. it's such a hot flat. Exactly. So you've got your six months when it's on, or eight months whenever it is, and um, you know there's absolutely zero control. There's zero um, detail on you know uh, as a function of the, the demand from for each flat. So. There will be times in uh, you know autumn where every, everyone's windows are open. Yeah, that's the only way they can get rid of the heat to make sure they've got some kind. So I mean that's how bad it can be. And of course, well that's a great opportunity for improvement as well. 
Yeah. But no, certainly, it is a totally, it's, it's a well-understood basic technology. And you're right, there was then this, I think it was maybe in the 70s and 80s when maybe we moved to electric, you know, the oil price rise, there have been a number of different factors. But we sort of kind of forgot about it. And then it was the 90s, noughties that we started sort of seeing this idea, I think partly because of the green, you know, and the low carbon movement. It was, oh, wait a second, what options do exist out there? So maybe more forward thinking housing associations, councils thought, yeah, that's an idea. Let's have some of that. But then, as you say, a whole generation had, had, had missed the learnings. So it was, there's a lot of heat networks out there that um, just aren't running properly, but we can get into what sort of design and, and specifics of that. But that's what we see. You know, what we see is one heat network after another that is failing to deliver on the promise of efficiency. It's such a great concept and it's a great way to reuse heat and use heat really efficiently. I mean, yeah, just- so, no, no, I was just going to say it's interesting because, so you've got, you know, you can have a boiler, Right? You can have a heat network with a boiler, which is, okay, okay, great. It's one boiler, so you don't have to stick 100 boilers in. It's just one big boiler heating them all up. And once again, the basic law of returns to scale, right? It should be giving you some efficiencies and all the rest of it. But it gets really exciting when you, and I'm going to say something that might be slightly controversial now because not, <laughs> not, 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 not everyone believes that we should be putting up energy from waste plants, mm. but... Certainly as an interim technology, energy from waste seems to be a good idea, right? Getting energy out of, out of our rubbish. Mm. Until we can figure out a way of getting rid of waste completely out of the supply chain, we still need to get rid of the rubbish rather than put it into landfill. And the reality is, is that a lot of energy from waste plants are getting built in the UK. We, if we bring energy from waste alongside wasted energy, i.e. exhaust heat that comes out of factories, that comes out of buildings, that comes out of you know, anything that's creating excess heat, you suddenly have this fantastic, essentially low cost, generally, you know, very available source of heat that you can then bring into heat networks. So you don't actually, the point being is, wouldn't it be cool if, if most heat networks didn't even need to put in a gas boiler or a, any other yeah. type of heat generating equipment? In the first, you're just like a tentacle grabbing whatever heat is around the place and then just sticking it in. And that's, that's where you've got some really interesting opportunities. Yeah. It makes me think of Puddle Town in near Dorchester. It was a Char- um, Prince Charles kind of town. That's right. Um, the cere- Dorset cereals are that based there. And I used to audit them. And they've kind of the town's almost grown up around them now. So there's actually quite a lot of stuff around them. And they, I don't think they produce um, that much heat, so it wouldn't be pertinent to them. But the concept of having a large distribution place within a town, and if that was a, I don't know, something that did produce a lot of heat, then it could help that. And you're get, then getting exactly the Swedish um, mentality, aren't you? Exactly. And I mean, I think... One of the reasons why a heat network is a good long-term bet is that once you've got the pipes in the ground and you've got the pipes transferring this hot water to the flats and the, the offices, etc., you're not committed to any specific technology that generates the heat at source. Yeah. So, you know, Puddle Town, you know, Dorset Cereal, 
cereals, maybe dorset cereals moves away and you know what else can come in all but you're able to grab heat from the local river or whatever it happens to be it's you've got that flexibility of what is the next best way of bringing heat into the system yeah yeah no absolutely going into mini bends and mm. the way that you run as a business mm. i'm assuming that you are a sustainable and ethical business <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Of course we are. <laughs> oh, well, you, know, you know what they say about assuming? No, of course. I mean, um, so I just step back. Just, you know, I, my personal professional ambition, can you have a personal professional? I think you can. Of course can. you can. Yeah. Of course you can. My, my personal and professional ambition is to, you know, walk the talk, right? And, and try and live and work in a way that really does align with the values of environmental sustainability, you know, um, re reducing my and humanity's impacts on the environment, leaving the world a better place, you know, all that good stuff that, to be honest with you, I'd be surprised if any human doesn't agree with most of those things, but it's how you get there. And Mini Bems is born very much of that, you know, um, it is born out of a genuine desire to to make energy, you know, to make energy systems as sustainable as possible. Mm. Um, now, you know, so that's that's our goal. That's our DNA. It's how can we do this now? Um, yeah. So it's you know, uh, I think I'm starting because I don't know if there's any specific definition of of sustainable here that you're looking for. Or you're thinking. No. No, I don't think there is. I think it's more just understanding your ethos behind the company. I mean, you're obviously clearly driven as an organisation to help, you know, help with low cost, um, fair pricing, and yes. fuel poverty alleviation, um, helping organisations reduce their environmental impact. But just wondering how you yeah. do it internally. So, when it comes to reducing your environmental impact and carbon footprint of mm. humans, what would you say your single biggest challenges are or frustrations? Um, around? I, yeah. So I think to be honest with you, it's probably transport. So we, we are essentially a software based um, heating solution these days. So off the top of my head, I would say transport and potentially that sort of weird and wonderful piece about, how, what is the what is the carbon footprint of our data mm. and the storage of our data and the storage of our data going forward as we aspire to bring on many thousands of, of people onto the Minibems platform. So, but I think on a day-to-day -day basis, it's the amount of travel that we have to do as a company and how, how do we avoid flying, basically, which is, which is just not easy. No. One of the things that your business, I remember when we first chatted, Mm. I was, and it goes into this transport that you've just been talking about is lots of companies that are in the maintenance go to sites because yeah. that's what they have to do. But what you can do that is different is you're able to review the site from, from, our, yeah. from our, yeah, from our dashboard on our computer. Indeed. Yeah. I'll tell you what, it is kind of funny. I think we're getting into uh, technology absurdity sometimes. So to give you an example, I was in a taxi last night. This has just mm. come to my head, but I was in a taxi last night um, with my girlfriend and she did not tell the taxi driver where we were going. 
Mm. You press the button on her attack, her online taxi service and said, have you received it? And he said, yes. And <laughs> so, you know, everything has to happen via the, the dashboard these days. And to the same extent, when we go on site, yes, sorry, so we can see things remotely, of course we do, but sometimes when we're commissioning, we look at our, our unit, and of course the unit does, we, we can't tell anything about our unit anymore unless we have our computer next to us, actually see what's going on inside. Right. And sorry, that's not quite your point, but it, sorry, it just, it's just this, it is quite absurd sometimes. You think, wow, I can look at the thing, but of course it doesn't tell me anything unless I've got my screen next to me. That's where we are. Yeah. The, the, the flip side is that of that, of course, is that you could be in Timbuktu and you could you could link into the the Glasgow heat network scenario with mini bems and figure out exactly what's going on. And you're spot on when it comes to unplanned maintenance, both for your boiler at home and for any heat system in the world, certainly in the UK today. Generally, it's remember how I talked about it at the beginning. We we know it's working when we don't have someone shouting at us. It's not working. Yeah, that's the business as usual maintenance protocol. If no one's calling us up, it's great. But if someone calls up, well, we better get to site quickly and figure it out. And let's see if we can figure it out in the first, second, or third trip. So there's a lot of ongoing. That is that that, that could potentially be our biggest environmental impact, reducing yeah. all that transport visits to and from site. Yeah. Have you ever done a case study on that and looked at it? Uh, listen. Um, on my list of, of to-dos, there's case studies. I think I must have written it down on my to-do list about 100 times. We're getting <laughs> close to the stage. We're getting close to the stage where, where, you know, where we have enough live sites going for enough time to be able to start tabulating these things. Yeah. Hmm. What I can tell you is um, we, we, we believe that the average call-out ratio, so that's the number of call-outs um, for every 10 flats per year, in the social housing sector, um, unplanned ones, it's eight call-outs for every 10 flats per year. Wow, that's quite and, a lot. And that's that's quite a lot. B- because when people call up and say, it's not working, they've got, you know, the, the person on the other end of the line just goes, I'll send an engineer. They have no way of being able to diagnose remotely like we can. Yeah. What else would they do? Because they want, A, they, want the, they don't want to have another angry phone call, and B, yeah, they want to resolve it so that, you know, they can move on to the next task. Yeah. So it's send an engineer. Now, guess what? Sometimes they send an electrician when a plumber's required. Sometimes they send a plumber when an electrician's required. So that, you know, these are the sort of simple mistakes mm. that get made um, all the time. Yeah. So we have found, um, and this is not confirmed or final data, but we have looked at a section uh, of one specific client, and our our call-out ratio dropped to two out of ten. Wow! From eight out of ten. So, you know, that's that begins to tell a story. That's that that's all. That probably that's probably not the whole story, and we need to drill down a little bit more into that to see exactly what that's talking about. But this is sort of stuff we're getting. Yeah, that's really good. That's yeah. brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, you've talked about the business, what you do. Is there anything else you want to add to um, to yeah to what it is that you you do? Um, because we did talk about condensing boilers and um, yeah, yeah. etc. I think um, it was interesting. When, 
I think I, I think probably most of our listeners would be quite interested to know what you talked when you talked about the condensing boilers. Yeah. What um, you said to me because I was a bit like, oh wow, I didn't realise that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. I think the condensing boiler example is is a good example um, of what we're doing with heat network systems generally. Our core, you know, if we look at the physics of what we're doing with the energy, and I'm not an engineer, so I will keep it as, 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 as simple as I can, um, is we are slowing down the movement of water around the system. Don't have to understand why, but generally what happens is the water in your, in your, in your, at your home or on a heat network is getting thrown around very, very quickly. Now, if you imagine that radiators, you don't have to imagine it, radiators are designed to take heat out of the water. Mm. That's what they're designed to do. They're designed to be very good at cooling down the water and then heating up your room. Uh, if the water's going really quickly through that radiator, doesn't have much chance to leave the heat in the room. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that, it, it's basically that. So what we talk about is the optimization of flow rates, which is basically making sure we slow down the water to just the right amount so that we're hitting desired temperature versus the temperature going through the radiator. Now, if you do that really well, you start matching up for every unit of fuel that goes into your boiler at home, you get nearer and nearer to one unit of boiler, I'm sorry, one unit of, of energy going into your room. Right, okay. Today, most heat networks are maybe three units of, 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 of energy to one unit of heat. So three units going into the boiler, one unit going into your... Most boilers at home um, will be something of like maybe two units, one or two units of, 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 of energy going in to one actually being used. There's a lot of reasons for that. Since 2004, all gas boilers in the UK, domestic gas boilers, getting fitted, should have been condensing gas boilers. What that basically means is you heat up the water, you push it out to your radiators, and when it comes back, any residual heat gets put back into the water that's about to go to the radiators. Mm. So you're recovering some of the heat that hasn't been put in the room so that um, otherwise that heat essentially gets lost and gets turned into steam or, 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 or hot, hot um, exhaust and thrown into the air. So that's heat and energy going out. The way boilers are meant to work is that they're meant to create, um, create hot water or at say 60 or 70 degrees, go out to the radiators and come back at a temperature lower than 55 degrees, preferably as low as 30 degrees. So 70 degrees out to your radiators and you're coming back in an ideal world, 30 degrees. Why is that? because the water does not condense and then put that excess heat back into your, your heating water. 
if it's if it's above 55 degrees so the water needs to be about 55 degrees or lower for it to take that excess would be wasted heat and put it back into the water that goes to your radiators again now that's the theme and that is what is tested in in every single lab for every single approved boiler getting fitted in the UK today there are 25 million supposedly condensing gas boilers in the UK today 25 million okay I've not done the numbers but if you start multiplying how many how much right we'll get to that bit yeah. anyway so 25 million all of them go through the tests at lab and everyone gets certified saying fantastic you're a brilliant condensing gas boiler but these are lab conditions and they are all signed off saying it under these perfect set conditions you're going out 70 or 16 you're coming back 30 you are a brilliantly condensing gas boiler thank you very much now i challenge every single one of your listeners who has a gas boiler to go to their gas boiler and if it's a condensing one you can check what temperature your flow is so the heat going out to your radiators and what temperature return is coming back from your radiators. It would be an amazing little bit of a survey to find out how many of them have got a return temperature of less than 55. And I would wager- to this, Why don't you email me and um, let me know and I'll pass it on to Ben. That would, that would be fascinating. It would be great to hear that because if it's above 55, it is not condensing. Mm. If it's not condensing, all the supposed gains are not being are not being um, are not are not being accessed. And here's the scary thing: the government has legislated right for all these condensing gas boilers to be put in as a matter of regulation. And I suspect I don't know this for certain, but I suspect that when this gets signed off and gets fed into their carbon emission figures, it is assuming that every single one of these gas boilers is condensing perfectly. So they're less environmental because they're not working so efficiently. And if those numbers are getting fed into our carbon budgets, it's assuming that 25 million gas boilers are condensing, when I would confidently predict that a fraction of them actually are, which means we're, you know, they're assuming a, a, a much greater carbon reduction than, than exists. So I've got two questions on that. What do you think the percentage um, difference would be um, like, are we talking 20%, 10%, 5%, 30% roughly? I, obviously, you're not, you've said that you're not an engineer, so I'm not holding you to figures, but... Um, yeah. No, no, there's a, there, I mean, this is, this, it's, it's common knowledge. I mean, common, sorry, it's not, it's not common knowledge. It's, <laughs> it is in your circles. <laughs> it's commonly, actually, exactly, it depends on your circle. It's, 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 it's commonly accessible information, and there's a graph that I can actually uh, share with you. Condensing will take it, it to I think it's ninety two percent plus, right efficiency, uh, and non condensing will, will will go down anywhere from you know will basically be below that. So it could be I don't know in total anywhere from five to maybe ten or fifteen percentage points of your total heat. Okay, so that would attribute that would account for ten five to ten percent of emissions being wrong by the government. Exactly, 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 right. exactly. And the other question I've got is, is it possible to rectify that? So say someone emails us and contacts us and says, mm. this is our temperature. Yeah. Is there a way that they can make yeah. their, enable their boiler to be more efficient? Yes. So the, the reason 
why it generally is not set up like that is because most gas gas installers, or a lot of them, excuse me, um, they fit the boiler, and they and for some reason I don't know why they don't go as far as commissioning it to ensure that that difference between the flow temperature and the return temperature. If you get a good, um, you know, professional gas engineer, they will be able to set up your boiler to ensure that the flow is going out at one temperature and the return is coming at 55 degrees or lower when heating. So it's a question of just changing the settings and getting that right. Right, okay. So you don't so, even need to add any information or you know, you don't even need to add anything. You literally, you'll have everything on site. In, in, exactly, I mean, well, here's the thing. This is how those gas boilers are being sold. They've been tested in the lab and, and they've been told, yeah, you're good to go. So challenge your gas fitter, gas installer, and the corresponding gas boiler manufacturer to install it, commission it, to ensure that it is hitting those, those parameters such that it is a condensing gas boiler. And if it can't, then you've been missold. Yeah. And if there are 25, 25 million missold gas boilers out there, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I've got another question which you may not be able to answer, but what, something we've talked about in the office recently was, um, and actually I've been trying to remember the name of it, but they, kind of weather optimization. So, and it's something that you can add to a boiler, and it's a sensor that sits outside and looks at the temperature outside and then regulates your boiler to yeah. the weather or yeah. you know to the temperature. It's, and I looked up mine, and we've got a um, pretty standard boiler. I can't remember what it's called now. A Worcester boiler. Yeah. And it was 23 quid for this device. Yeah. And I was a bit like, oh, wow. I cannot believe that it's so cheap. And I'm just about to try and look into how, if I can fit it, or if I can get someone else to fit it really easily, because that made complete sense. And one of, cause one of the things that my other half has said is, oh, wow, look how cold it is outside. Um, it does feel colder in the house and it's probably because the boiler is running with the temperature outside at 15 degrees but actually outside is minus five yeah so that's called weather compensation that's the one weather compensation yeah weather compensation <laughs> and it, no totally and it's the optimization strategy of a heating system and hmm. um, you, you you've got two strategies one is so weather, weather compensation is increasing or decreasing the temperature of the water going to the radiators from boiler to radiators as a function of how warm or cold it is outside. So the warmer it is outside, the lower the temperature of the water going to your radiators. The colder it is outside, the warmer the, the, the water going to your radiators. So it's about that balance. It's energy efficiency measure, definitely. And so if you combine varying the flow temperature with the speed, which is what many vendors flow rate, you, you, you're, that's what we call you know, true optimization, where you're really, you're, you're, you're managing temperature and speed of water through the system. But you're spot on. Weather compensation, once again, that should be, well, I would, I would argue that flow rate, flow temperature and flow rate should probably be regulated as, yeah, standard, right? They should be part of a sensible heating system. Hmm. Yeah, well, I was just—I think we were a bit surprised, and we actually came across a really good video that describes it. 
and um, yeah. I can share that at the bottom yeah. of the podcast for anyone that's interested. I can't remember who wrote it or whatever, but it's mm. on YouTube. And it's a three-minute video that uh, that says exactly how it all works and fits together. Yeah, yeah. No, listen, it, it, it's 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 fairly straightforward once you know, but it's it takes a bit of time just to sort of get a feel for it. Um, but yeah, now I would invite all your all your listeners and subscribers to yeah just check what the flow temperature is, what the return temperature is, and if if the return temperature is above fifty five degrees, you know, speak to the guy who fitted it and say, can you please. Get it below 55. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. What a great piece of advice. <laughs> um, well, I, leaving on um, advice, is there anything else that you can share with anyone listening to um, our podcast? Ooh, um, gosh, no, I'm trying to think of a, of a, witty, a witty remark there, uh, but nothing's come to mind straight away. Sunlight uh, so, like then? <laughs> <laughs> You know what, actually? Um, whenever you're looking at your heating system, I think the, the, that, you know, looking, you know, speaking, finding out about the flow rate, flow temperature, uh, return temperature, sorry, on your, your gas pulse one thing. The other thing that I'm a big fan of and doesn't happen enough um, and is probably more applicable to businesses, but it could definitely apply to your house as well, is, you know, the next time you th you're, you're thinking about putting a new heating system in, or if indeed you want to just audit your system to find out whether it's actually matching what you need with the size of the system or size of boiler you've bought, if you can, bring in a company to do a heat loss assessment. Now what that is, it's a called a room, a room by room heat loss assessment. Many firms will do it for you free as part of their sales process. And it goes to every room, they measure up the dimensions, they take a note of the fabric of the wall and the type of window, and they can calculate actually at minus seven degrees outside or minus two degrees outside, what size of heating system you actually need to keep your, your house warm to 21 or 22 degrees. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes complete sense. So it's coldest time of the year, how much power do you need to get to this nice, comfortable piece? traditionally no one's bothered doing it because it's extra time and energy right so what happens is that time and time again boilers or heating systems get oversized yeah and oversized that, that, that's that's for our next podcast we can talk about the impact of the oversizing of systems because that's another big source of inefficiency uh yeah i and i've got experience of it we had an electric heater in our old flat and i decided to put in one heater the guy that put it in insisted that we should have two and i was my gut feeling was no i don't think we do but a because it's a bedroom and you don't need your bedroom really really hot anyway no. um and we didn't need to and i was talking to someone about it and they said it's because they were fitting it and they did not want you to be cold they felt they had to say it and you can understand that that's just empathy isn't it it's, but that empathy and that wanting to help would have cost us a huge amount more money. <laughs> In terms of fitting and, and, and then, then usage. And it's all because there's not the tradition, the discipline of let's measure the heat loss requirement in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been really, really interesting talking to you and learning about mini bends and what it is that you're doing. Um, do keep in touch with um, all your stuff. And we'll, yeah, we should get you on in a year or two and mm-hmm. um, find out where you are and what, what more projects you've been working on and what more you've learned about something that we all use and take for granted, and that's heating. So thank you. I'd be very happy to, Will. I really appreciate the chance to, to chat and share. So yeah, good on you. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening to the end of this episode of the Green Element Podcast. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what has been your biggest takeaway from this conversation. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us so we can see them too, at GE underscore podcast. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, greenelement.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better world. Mm -hmm.